of one place, if you could go anywhere in the entire world, what would be that one place that you would go to? No, don't tell me. I don't, I don't really care. The kitchen? <laughs> like right now. Right now. Um, so think about that. What is the one place if you could go to that you would go to? Just get out of here. <laughs> Let's just talk about this planet. This planet. I'm talking like Aruba or Cincinnati. I don't know. No. All right, think of one place. All right, this is what I want you to do. I want you to stand up, and I want you to find someone that possibly has the same place and destination as you. Do it really quick. Do it. And then when you're done, you can sit wherever you want. I'm not telling you where to sit. Just see if you can find someone that has the same interests as you. Stand up, stand up, stand up. Like the same place. Montana? Garner. You've been there? Have we found any matches yet? Yeah? yeah. Technically? Same continent? Oh, I didn't even think about it. I thought about it. Greece. Or Israel. I changed it to Israel. All right, got 60 seconds. All right, did anyone, did anyone pick somewhere in the United States? No. Yeah, okay, okay, so about 10. Anyone pick somewhere in North Carolina? Really? Where? Where? Grandfather Mountain? Is that where Last of the Mohicans was filmed? Yeah? All right, so what, what were some of the places you guys want to visit? Japan. Paris, Japan. Where? My, what? Your bed. I was like, what's my bed? Yeah. Bora Bora. Beijing, okay. Florida. What were you going to say, Eli? What? No one's been out. I'm gonna go visit Wuhan, see what that's like. Just kidding. Too soon?
Anyways, no, I think I would pick Israel. Tokyo? It's not bad. It'd either be Israel or Greece. Has anybody ever visited anywhere outside of the United States? You did? Where? Oh, wow. Oh, I think I remember that. So Echo said she's lived in Japan and Germany. So if you have interest about that. All right. All right, turn to Luke chapter 9. Luke chapter 9, Luke chapter 9. We are going to start in verse 27 this morning. Luke 9 is a long chapter. There's a lot in it. Yeah, 26. Three. All right, let's pray. So, Lord, we thank you for this morning. Lord, I thank you for the joy that we have. Lord, I thank you for another day, another week. Thank you that we get to go into your word today. Lord, that we can find some truth and some hope and some joy that is in it. And so we just pray that you be with us, that you'd guide our understanding and um, just the teaching. So we thank you. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen. So if you guys were here last week, uh, we talked about three things, that, that th- three different sections that we looked at um, in Luke 9. And one of the things that, that we're going to see this common theme just in chapter 9 itself and, and almost in the whole gospel of Luke is all right, Joe and Jariel. I'm just going to just... It's a warning, okay? It happens every week. So, um, we looked at uh, one, of the, one of the common things that we're going to see is trying to figure out the identity of Jesus, okay? And so, if you guys remember earlier on, uh, they were trying to figure out who Jesus was. Herod was trying to figure out who Jesus was, right? People were coming to him and telling him, you know, this is who Jesus is. He's some say he's this, some say he's this, he's John, Elijah, one of the prophets, he's this guy from the dead. Uh, then we get to the point where then Jesus asks his disciples who, who the crowds thinks he is. And they say pretty much the same thing. There's a lot of people out there who think, you know, you're either uh, Elijah or John the Baptist or one of the old prophets that has risen again. And then that's when we looked at this last week where we looked at the personal question is, who is Jesus to you? And now, this isn't like a, um, this isn't going to be like a relative answer, okay? This isn't going to be like, Jesus, you know, your answer is going to be this, her answer is going to be that. We're all supposed to have the same answer because Jesus is the same person. Jesus isn't like, you know, to me, he's my homeboy, and to you, he's this, that. No, Jesus is who he is, and that's what we're coming to find out in this chapter, who he is, his identity, Right? And so Jesus asks, one, asks the disciples, and then Peter answers, and he says, the Christ of God. Okay? He is the anointed. He is the Messiah. He is the one who is, who is of God. And so we get through this. We, we continue on, and Jesus talks about in verse 22, which we looked at last week. He says he talks about the Son of Man, okay? which is the, the Son of God. And so here Jesus is now again claiming to be the Son of God. Peter confesses him to be Christ of God. And then 
as we finished last week, we got into verse 26, and some of your Bibles might break up your sections where it ends in verse 27, but we didn't even read 27. Some of your Bibles start with verse 27, but I think 27, verse 27, which we'll begin today, is like, it's almost a segue in between what we looked at last week and what we're going to look at this week. And so I didn't even want to read it last week because I want this to be our introduction to this section this morning as we look at verses 27 through 36. So I'm going to go ahead and read it because I think we need to to see the big picture before we break it down verse by verse. And this is one of the... um, I remember growing up and thinking, what, what is this even about? Like, what is, what is the purpose of the section? What is the transfiguration, as, as we call it, of Jesus? What does that mean? What's, what's the purpose? And so um, I, I hope that by the end of this, we'll have a good understanding of the purpose behind Jesus doing this to, and revealing himself to the disciples here. So, verse 27, Jesus says, But I tell you truly, There are some standing here who shall not taste death till they see the kingdom of God. Now it came to pass about eight days after these sayings that Jesus, he, took Peter, John, and James and went up on the mountain to pray. And as he prayed, the appearance of his face was altered and his robe became white and glistening. And behold, two men talked with him, who were Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his decease, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. But Peter and those with him were heavy with sleep, which is pretty normal. It happens all the time when Jesus is praying. And when they were fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. Then it happened as they were parting with him that Peter said to Jesus, Master, it's good for us to be here. And let us make three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses and one for Elijah, not knowing what he said. I feel like a lot of us are this, is, is our similar character to Peter. And while he was saying this, the cloud came and overshadowed them, and they were fearful as they entered the cloud. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my beloved son, hear him. And when the voice had ceased, Jesus was found alone. But they kept quiet and told no one in those days They told no one in those days any of the things they had seen. So there's a lot that is is happening here, a lot that we have to work our our way through. Um, But again, as we look at verse 27, as I mentioned earlier, it's a a good segue from what we were looking at to what we are going into. And so again, it was trying to figure out the identity of Jesus. Who, Who is he? Who is he to you? Again, Peter says, you are Christ the God, okay? Then Jesus as there's this personal proclamation of Jesus, this is who you are. Jesus then says, and he, he makes this, this bold and just astounding claim and command for us as Christians, as those of us who claim that, that he is Christ of God. He says, if anyone, in verse 23, if anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow me. Now, that's, I mean, that's completely absurd, right? That is something that's it's complete self-denial. It seems counterproductive. It seems the opposite of, of what Jesus wants for us. He says, For whoever desires to save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world and is, is himself destroyed or lost? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words of him, the Son of Man will be ashamed when he comes in his own glory and his fathers and of holy angels. And so he makes this, again, this, this command, this if you want to follow me, this is what you have to do. These three things. Deny yourself, take up your cross daily, 
and follow me. And so it's like, Jesus, why? Why would I do that? Right? Like, what, you, don't, you don't just follow these commands and do these things to anyone that says it to you. Right? There, there has to be a reasoning. There has to be authority. There has to be a purpose behind it. And I believe as we figure out the identity of Jesus, as he reveals himself to his disciples, we're going to realize that, okay, he commanded us to do this. If we, if we truly believe him, if we want to follow him, if we know who he is, then we can follow through with these things. If we don't know who he is, then these things sound completely absurd and asinine. We would never do that. I would never deny myself, take up my, and willingly uh, die in a sense and follow somebody in this way of taking up a cross. But again, we see this in the three other gospels, Luke, uh, Matthew, and Mark, I believe. We see the transfiguration of Jesus. And every time it starts with Jesus praying, and then it leads into um, Jesus revealing himself to the disciples or, or the three disciples here. The, the core group that he has, because he wants to show them, look, if you want to follow me, this is who I am. And it gave him confidence. It gave him faith and understanding that Jesus is the Son of God. So again, this is an extreme call to follow Jesus unto death. But he says here in verse 27, he says, there are some standing here who shall not taste death till they see the kingdom of God. And I believe here that he's speaking of the three disciples, that they will not taste death death. Because think about it this way. Like, yes, Jesus has done some amazing things. Like, what are some of the things that Jesus has done up until this point? Not yet. Up, up until this point that we're reading in Luke chapter 9. What did he do? He turned water into wine, which is, like, pretty cool, but doesn't prove you're the son of God, because even Moses's nemesis could do that. The magicians, yeah. Raise the girl from the dead. Okay, I mean, that's, that's saying something, right? What else? Jesus was born, but so was I, so it's not really anything special. He was born of a virgin, so there we go. Yeah. He walked on water. Yeah, that's pretty amazing. Peter did that, though, so. He did, he did. Are we sure he did that? He did, yeah. Yeah. So the, a lot of this, a lot of stuff that Jesus has already done, and we see that one of the things that he also did was he preached about the kingdom of God, right? The, the kingdom of God is at hand, that John warned, you know, that the kingdom of God is at hand. Uh, he told his disciples to preach about the kingdom of God. And so then there's this, this, this thought that, okay, well, well, then what is the kingdom of God? Like, is the kingdom of God real? Is it there? And what is going to happen is Jesus is going to reveal to them the kingdom of God, the thing that they have been, been sharing with others, the thing that Jesus has been sharing with them. And it's all going to become so real and true to them as Jesus reveals it. Because he says to them, look, you're not going to taste death till you see the kingdom of God. And so as we go through this transfiguration of Jesus doing what he does, they're then able then to see the kingdom of God. And then from that point on, as Jesus reveals himself to his disciples, there is, without a shadow of a doubt, that Jesus is who he says he is. That Jesus is who the Father says he is. Because we hear this voice that comes out and says, this is my beloved son. Hear him. And so it's this confirmation that Jesus is the son of God. That he, there is deity. That not only is he human, but he's God. 
And that's the miracle that we're going to see. It's not, it's not a miracle of Jesus transforming from a man to God. I believe it's, it's, it's a miracle in the sense of the fact that God was able to, to become man and reveal himself as man and to hold back the glory that he had in him because he's God. And so I think he, he unveiled the, the flesh, the manly side of him, so that they could see the deity in God, who Jesus is. So, again, the sum that is referred to in verse 27, I believe, is, is the three here, is Peter, James, and John, and they're going to see this unveiling. It's not, again, that Jesus changes himself, but he just reveals who he really is. And they're going to catch a glimpse of the kingdom of God and the Son of God. And this is Jesus. In John 17, 5, it says, And now, O Father, glorify... This is Jesus speaking before he's crucified. He says, Now, O Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. So this glory that they're going to see on this mountain is something that has always been there. It's just been veiled through his humanity. And now he's going to reveal it to his disciples. And again, this brings about so much confidence and, and trust and belief that that this is the Son of God. And it's something that then will be passed down from generation to generation because there's, there's three eyewitnesses, right? There's three eyewitnesses who are then going to share with others. And we're going to see that as Peter even shares of it in Second Peter, which we'll look at at the end of this. So Jesus is lifting the veil of flesh. Um, we see that he had this glory even before his, his incarnation. Um, you know, this is just who he's revealing himself to be. And he goes, in verse 28, says it came to pass about eight days after these sayings that he took Peter, John, and James, and he went up to the mountain to pray. You know, again, we see this constantly with Jesus, that he's constantly seeking the Father in prayer. And all, we're also seeing constantly that when the disciples go with him, that they typically fall asleep. And, and that's, that's because there's this battle that we have. Okay, here's the thing. You, do you understand that we're not Jesus? Yeah? Because you may be thinking, well, why does Jesus not fall asleep, but the disciples do? Because we're like the disciples. We're not like Jesus. Jesus is unique. He's the Son of God, right? And so you may have heard me say this before, and I'm going to try to say this very lightly and gingerly and correctly. You guys know the WWJD bracelets, yeah? What would Jesus do? WWJD? It's, I mean, it was big when I was a kid. It's still pretty relevant and uh, prevalent now. Um, and the concept is, you know, you're in a certain situation and you think, what would Jesus do? How, how do I handle this situation? And that's not necessarily a bad thing, right? Like, we, we want to be like Jesus. But what, we, what the misconception could be and, and where, where we can miss the mark is thinking, if, I, if we were in a certain situation, if I had a hypothetical situation and I asked 10 of you in this room, what would Jesus do? How many answers do you think would be the same? Probably not a lot. They probably would be, be different. And why is that? Because we would then think from our own thoughts and our own opinions of how Jesus would handle this situation, right? Now, Jesus has clearly said many things. And so I believe that before we can even do what Jesus would do, we have to know what Jesus said. Right? I think it's better to, to think, well, what did Jesus say? Because Jesus, Jesus gave us many instructions. We even see this, it's, it's point blank here, when, when God says about his son, he says, hear him. It literally means listen to him. 
And so if we try to go about where we try to, we try to be like Jesus, you're going you're gonna to miss it because he's unique. He's the son of God. Some of the things that, that he did was, was the son of God, not you and I. The raising somebody from the dead, that was unique to the son of God. The temptation of Satan in the wilderness, that was unique to the son of God. That was not a temptation that was for man, that was for the son of God. And so when we try to think, well, gosh, you know, I want to be like Jesus. Yeah, we should exemplify Jesus, but we're also not Jesus. So, you know, as we see Jesus go to pray, it's like, well, Jesus doesn't fall asleep. Well, the, the disciples do. And the reason behind it is because we are like the disciples. We battle against the flesh, right? We, we fall victim to the flesh sometimes. Sometimes we do the things that we don't want to do, and we don't do the things that we want to do. There's this constant battle. Galatians, Ephesians talks about this battle that we have between the spirit and the flesh. It's constantly there, right? Now, the beautiful thing is we can fight from a stance of victory because of what Jesus has done, but we still have to fight. We still have to, you know, there's still this fight, you know, when we try to pray and then our mind starts to wander. We try to pray and then we start to fall asleep. That's just what happens because we are still in our, our, our fallen earthly vessels, but Jesus is victorious. Jesus is also the Son of God. I am not. And yet Jesus still goes and he prays to the Father. As he prays, the disciples fall asleep. They're going to wake up, though, thankfully, because this is the whole purpose of this is for these three disciples. So it says in verse 29, As he prayed, the appearance of his face, Jesus, was altered, and his robe became white and glistening. Now, again, I don't think this was a new miracle, but really a temporary pause of an ongoing miracle. That the fact that Jesus, most of the time, could keep from displaying his glory in this way. But re- here he transfigures himself. There's this altering of the appearance of his face. Matthew talks about it shining like the sun, like it was so bright, it, it shone like the sun. And so the disciples here, as when they wake up, they're going to see Jesus in his glory. In the Old Testament, the writers spoke of God's glory. And when they did, it was always in reference to brightness, light, lightning. It was something that was brilliant. It was illuminated. It, they used all these, these words and descriptive words uh, like that. And as an example, in Ezekiel, in chapter 1, it speaks of the glory of God as a lightning flash. Uh, as a cloud surrounded by or outlined with light and a great illumination that penetrated everything. And that's kind of what we see here in this text today. We became white and glistening. He literally completely changes and reveals his glory to the disciples here. His face was being transformed. Again, Matthew says that his face shone like the sun and his clothes were even, even glorified. Mark says that his clothes became intensely white more white than anyone could bleach them. It says, and no launderer in the world can make it as white as it was. And that's the brilliance and the glory of Jesus. In the Old Testament, it whispered of his glory. It, it, it only hinted of his glory and the salvation that we have in Jesus. But here, it's something that is just so evident and it's so loud that it's crystal clear that Jesus Christ now has unveiled his glory to us to reveal that he is the Son of God, that he is deity. In Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 3, it says this, the revelation of the glory of Christ. It says, God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets, 
has in these last days spoken to us by his Son, whom he has appointed heir of all things, through whom also he had made the worlds, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person, and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Jesus is the brightness of God's glory. And the fact that they were able to witness this is an amazing and astonishing thing. No man ever before had been able to see this, but Peter, James, and John were able to see it this day. So again, in verse 29, it says that his face was altered. And I think this is an important point in Jesus' ministry because he just told his disciples, that he's, again, that he's going to go away, he's going to die, he's going to go on the cross, um, and that they should follow him. And you're like, mm, <laughs> I don't know, Jesus. Um, but yet in this transfiguration, this, this, this glory that is radiating, Jesus shows himself again to be king over all of God's kingdom. The kingdom of God is revealed to them. And so they realize then that the end isn't necessarily the cross. The end is the glory of God. And so as all of this is happening, we get into verse 30. And it says that two men talked with him who were Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his decease, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. And now, this is interesting as well. And this is interesting because Moses and Elijah were alive a long time ago, right? These weren't guys that were just around at this point. Moses had been dead for about 1,500 years. Um, Elijah, he didn't die, but he was gone about 900 years ago. And yet, they were recognizable as Moses and Elijah. Now, as all this is happening, because again, this is for the benefit of the disciples, okay, to know that he is the Son of God, that he is deity. Why in the midst of all of this now are these two guys here talking with Jesus? Why, why are they here too? Okay, and, and then also the question is going to be, why these two guys? Why not two other guys, right? Why not Abraham? Why not Elisha or... Isaiah, why, why not anyone else, right? And so that's something that we're going to look at and answer with these, these two questions. So I, I believe the first thing that we look at is why these two guys, specifically why these two guys. I believe they represent two things, okay? Why Moses was there and why Elijah was there. I believe Moses was there because he represented the law, okay? And I believe that Elijah was there because he represented the prophets. And now the law and the prophets all pointed back to the Old Testament. You guys remember this as we're reading through the Gospels. The Law and the Prophets, they come up often. We see it in Hebrews. We see it all throughout the Gospels. We see even with the simple question of um, what's the greatest commandment? You guys remember what that is? Yeah, yeah. Love God with all your heart and to love others, right? And he says, on this hangs all the Law and the Prophets. You know, so again, it's it's a looking back at the Old Testament. Because the prophets, what they did was that they pointed to and they predicted of these things that would happen um, of Jesus, right? The Messiah that would come. And so Jesus then fulfills these prophecies by doing them. And he also fulfills the law, the law that was given to Moses, right? The representation of the law in Moses. And so he fulfills that. He doesn't abolish it. He doesn't take it away. He, he fulfills it. And he does it perfectly. You know, the law says to do this or not to do that. And Jesus completely and fully fulfills it because not only does he teach it, but he obeys it in its entirety. 
And all of us in this room could not do that, right? And so that, the law even in itself, pointed to Jesus, the one who was only able and capable of fulfilling it and obeying it to its fullest perfection. Jesus does that. And so again, this is what we're going to see. We're going to see the law and the prophets. And as these two guys are speaking, it says that they talk about, was it in verse 30, 31, it says that they, they spoke of his decease, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. So that literally means that they're, they're speaking about his death that's about, about to happen. But interestingly enough, the word decease here, it actually means in Greek, it's the same word used for exodus, right? Now, who was really involved in the exodus of the Egyptians? Moses, right. Moses was that leader in the Old Testament with the exodus of the Israelites out of Egypt. And the whole purpose of that story was not, just, was not only just a liberation from the oppression and the slavery of the Egyptians, but it was a picture of Jesus to come who would liberate and free us from the, the slavery of sin, right? How he freed the Israelites from the Egyptians and how they were in bondage and no, they were no longer in bondage. It was this foreshadowing of this true exodus that was to come, which is Jesus, right? So here they're speaking together about the exodus that Jesus is going to perform where he's not necessarily going to liberate us from a physical slavery, right, or oppression here on earth, but a spiritual one, which is vitally more important. doesn't mean that the physical isn't important. It, it, it is. It still is. But vitally more important is the spiritual liberation and freedom that we receive through the work of Jesus on the cross. So they're talking about that. Interesting. I wonder what that whole conversation sounded like. I have no idea. But they're talking about his death and knowing that he had to die. You know, and I think sometimes we, we get caught up on that. There's a question of, well, why did, why did God have to die? You know, I mean, couldn't he, couldn't God just do whatever he wants? Couldn't he just say, like, I mean, he's powerful enough to do whatever he wants, right? So why did he have to die? Well, I think it's, it's, it's simple, but it's complex, but it's the gospel, it's not something that's a, a, a terrible tragedy. It's a beautiful thing that Jesus died on the cross. It's not a mistake. It was purposeful. It was designed, you know, that, that God would redeem us from the foundation of the world. You know, that he knew that we would fail. Isn't that crazy? That, that God knew this would happen, yet he created us anyways? Why would he do that? Why, why not not make us? He didn't have to, but he, he wanted to, which is more love in that sense because instead of having to do something, he wanted to do something, and we were created to glorify him and to praise him, right? It's not that he needed us, but he wanted us, and yet he still knew that we would disobey and we would fail, and the reason that, he, the reason that we failed is because he gave us free will, Right? He, said, he could have said this. He could have said to Adam and Eve, don't eat of the, 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 this fruit, right? Of the tree of, of knowledge of good and evil, right? Don't eat of it. And then he could have forced them to not eat it. Right? Don't you think he could have done that? But then, you know, if like, okay, you're teenagers. You don't ever like to be forced to do anything. Well, let me say this again. You're human beings. You don't like to ever be forced to do anything, right? It's then there's, there's no, uh, it's, it's not real if you're forced to do something. 
If you're forced to, you know, take out the trash, well, you're going to probably do it with a horrible attitude and get trash everywhere. If you're forced to love somebody, well, that's completely weird, right? And it's not love. It's just more of a, I don't know, it's, it's not love. And so God gave us this free will, and he gave us the opportunity to disobey, and that's where the free will comes in. And yet we did disobey, and because of his love for us, he gave us free will, and as we disobeyed that free will and we disobeyed the commands of God, we fell, sin entered the world, right? Which is where all the evil and wickedness came from, where everything that we experienced that is not good came from our disobedience to God. And yet God still didn't just let us sit and wallow in our sin and, and allow things to get worse and worse and worse. He brought about good news, and the good news was that we can be freed from this sin, which the consequence of sin is death, Okay. That's just what it is. It's death. It brings about death, right? He says, if you eat of it, you shall surely die. And they did not die in that very moment. I believe they died spiritually, but they also died physically a lot later, like eight, 900 years later, which would be insane. But they eventually tasted death. And yet Jesus came and he fulfilled the law perfectly. He lived it perfectly he became the perfect sacrifice because somebody had to fulfill that consequence, and that was death. And if we believe in that, then we are imputed his righteousness because of what he has done. It's a beautiful gospel story. And so they're talking about this and how he has to do this. This was planned. It was something that Jesus wanted to do, that he would die in our place, that he had to die. He came to die. And so, again, Moses and Elijah are talking. We got the representation of the law and the prophets. Um, we talked about this for a minute. Um, but in the Gospels, Jesus speaks of the law and the prophets multiple times. Um, again, in Matthew 22, he talks about the two greatest commandments, and he refers back to the law and the prophets. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus pointed to his absolute perfection in Matthew 5:17, where he says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. And Jesus says that he came to fulfill the law and the prophets. In other words, the purpose here was to establish the word. The law and the prophets is, is speaking back to the Old Testament. That he came to establish the word, to embody it, to be it, and to fully accomplish all that was written and all that was said. Romans 10.4 says, Christ is the culmination of the law. So all the predictions the prophets spoke of concerning the Messiah would be realized in Jesus Christ. The, the, the standard, the holy standard of the law that was given in the Old Testament would be perfectly upheld by Jesus Christ. The requirements uh, that need to be personally obeyed, Jesus did. The ceremonial observances, uh, observances were finally and fully satisfied in Jesus Christ. And so he fulfills the prophets. He fulfills the law. Again, he was a teacher of the law and he was a doer of the law. He told people to obey it, and yet he also obeyed it. And he lived a perfect life. He fulfilled the moral laws. He was in his sacrificial death. Jesus, again, he fulfilled the ceremonial laws. And so, again, he didn't come to destroy this old religious system, but to build upon it. And he came to finish the old covenant and establish the new covenant. And it's a simple and beautiful new covenant. It's a matter of putting your faith in Jesus Christ, receiving the grace of God, and obeying him. It's as simple as that. 
It's not, you know, you have to go to this great high priest and bring this and that. No, Jesus has fulfilled all that and he has made it all in him. The simplicity is that it's all in Jesus Christ. And that's what it's all about. It's all about Jesus because he has done it. And so in verse 32, Peter wakes up and those who were with him were heavy with sleep. And when they were fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. So again, this, this transfiguration, this revealing of who Jesus is, wasn't for the benefit of Jesus. It wasn't for the benefit of Moses or Elijah. It was for these disciples. It was to strengthen their faith. Again, Jesus made all these claims about the coming of his kingdom. And here they see his kingdom. As he says in verse 27, that there's some standing here who will not taste death till they see the kingdom of God. Now that they've seen the kingdom of God, they're probably going to taste death, right? A little while later. But again, Jesus reveals himself as the son of God. To two or three here we see witnesses. And this will establish the testimony of who Jesus is. For, from then on to now, that he is the son of God. It's, it's credible evidence to the fact that he is the son of God. So then it happened as they were parting from him that Peter said to Jesus, Master, it's good for us to be here. Let us make three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah, not knowing what he has said. And so Peter starts off with some, saying something good. You know, like, it's, it's good for us to be here. Well, yeah, like, that's why Jesus invited you here, right? But then he goes on, he says this kind of just stupid thing. You know, I don't know if you guys are like me, where you kind of say things without thinking about them first. And sometimes that can get you in trouble. And Peter just automatically just says what's on his mind before he starts to really think about it. And, and Luke throws this in here. He says, he says all these things, not knowing what he said. So he says, well, let, let's make three tents, three tabernacles, you know, as, as like an honor to these three people. And you might be thinking, well, what was his mistake? What did he say wrong? Well, here's the thing is that Moses and Elijah are not on the same level as Jesus. And that it's not about Moses and Elijah or anyone else, John the Baptist, Paul. It's not about any of them. It's about Jesus. And after all this is done, we're going to see in verse 36, after all this had ended, Jesus was found alone. Because the point and the purpose that we're to see here is that it's all about Jesus, that he was found alone. And so Moses and Elijah are not on the same level. Peter makes this mistake. I, you know, it's just a, Peter's just jumping the gun here. But in Hebrews 3, 3 through 6, um, we see the truth here in verse 3. It says, for this one has been, speaking of Jesus, Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses. Inasmuch as he has built the house, has more honor than the house. So yeah, there's an importance and there's honor, I guess, in a sense, to Moses. But he's nothing in comparison to Jesus. In verse 4, it says, For every house is built by someone, but he who built all things is God. And Moses indeed was faithful in all his house as a servant for a testimony of those things which would be spoken afterward. But Christ, but Jesus, as a son over his own house, whose house we are if we hold fast the confidence and the rejoicing of the hope firm to the end. Jesus, it's all about him. It's everything that he has done. And then we're going to see here in this last section, verses 34 through 36, who the Father says that Jesus is. 
So it was while he was saying this, a cloud came and overshadowed them, and they were fearful as they entered the cloud. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, this is my beloved son, hear him. And so again, as we talked about earlier on, this, this section is about the identity of Jesus. Jesus makes this bold proclamation that, look, if you want to follow me, deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me, you know. And, all, and through that, he then, again, he reveals himself as a son of God so that they will do the things that he's called them to do. And here again, just as another confirmation of who Jesus is, God speaks, the Father speaks, and he says, and he affirms that this is my beloved son. And then he says something. He says, hear him. He says, well, he tells the disciples what they need to do is to listen to him. And that's it. Listen to him. Pay attention to Jesus. He's what the Bible is talking about. He is what scripture refers to. He's what the law and the prophets, again, refer to. He is the one the whole Bible is pointing to. From Genesis to Revelation, it is all pointing to Jesus. And so when the voice had ceased, Jesus was found alone, but they kept quiet and told no one in those days any of the things they had seen. So again, Jesus deserves all the focus. It's not about you know, Elijah, it's not about Moses, it's not about Peter, it's about Jesus. And so at the very end here, we see that Luke tells us that they told no one of these things, and that's not to say that they never told anyone, but in that moment, in, those, in that time right then and there, they kept quiet and they didn't tell anyone. I believe for one of the reasons, probably nobody would ever believe them, right? But eventually they did start telling people because it was a, a clear evidence that Jesus was the Son of God. And so in 2 Peter, I'll end here, 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 16 through 18, this is important. Peter says this, okay? Peter was one of the guys that was up there, remember? As he's writing his epistle, he says this to his readers. He says, For we did not follow cunningly devised fables, when we made known to you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses of his majesty. And I know there's many people who would think when it comes to the Bible that you are in a cult, you are in some type of weird thing that you cannot prove, that is not real, that's silly, it's obnoxious. It is, in a sense, cunningly devised fables. But Peter says we do not follow those things. What we follow is real, and what we follow is true. We have seen the evidence our own eyes have experienced it, and we ourselves have been a part of it. He says we were eyewitnesses of his majesty, and here he's referring back to this very moment where Jesus transfigured himself and unveiled himself as the Son of God in all his glory, or part of his glory. In verse 17, Peter goes on to say, For he received from God the Father honor and glory when such a voice came to him from the excellent glory this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And when he heard this voice which came from heaven, or when we heard this voice which came from heaven, when we were with him on the holy mountain. So Peter then eventually starts telling people that this is what I saw. This is what I experienced. This is not some made up thing. This is not some philosophy. This is real. This is true. And the whole reason, again, that we see Jesus portraying himself and transfiguring himself is for not just the three disciples, 
but for the three disciples and everyone else that has been passed down from generation to generation, to even now as we see it in Scripture, that we can believe that this truly happened so that we can believe that Jesus is the Son of God and that he can save us from our sins. Because if Jesus is not the Son of God, he cannot save us from our sins. But he is, and he did, and he can. But again, just like in the very beginning when he gave us free will, he did not force Adam and Eve to do this or that. He gives you and I free will so that we can hear the truth. We can hear what we have to do if we want to be born again, if we want to be freed from the bondage of our sin. Because there's many of us in this room right now who have experienced, when I say many, I want to say all of us have experienced the bondage of sin and the destruction that it has. It's horrible. God did not create us to to be in bondage to sin. He wants to free us from it. And there's an easy way out, and it's through what Jesus did. But so many of us, we keep rejecting it, and we keep coming here week after week. We're miserable. We're broken. We're hurting. We keep falling through the same cycle. If, If you're habitually sinning, you keep doing the same thing over and over again. You try to get right, and you do it of your own flesh and your own accord, but then you go back to, to sinning because you feel guilt, you feel shame, you feel all these things. So you try to mask it and cover up by the continual sin. But then that sin brings about the, more, the, the same thing again. I think you get what I'm talking about because you've probably experienced it. That's what sin does. It's destructive. Sin, sin makes us feel like we're alone. Sin makes us feel like nobody cares. Sin makes us feel like life isn't worth living. Sin is terrible but it's also pleasurable, hence why we keep going back to it. But it's destructive. And yet Jesus says that if you believe in me, if you confess your sins, he will free us from those sins. He has the power to do it, guys. But it has to be of his accord, not your accord. Not your strength, but his strength. It has to be a surrender of who you are and what you're going through to him. And he can do it. He will do it. He has done it. I've experienced it. Many of you in this room have experienced it. Many, many people, I, gosh, just the testimonies that you can hear from. Gosh, I wish you could hear the testimony of my, my grandfather. Every Sunday morning, he comes in here and he prays with me. Well, my grandfather, it's Whitney's grandfather. But every Sunday morning, he comes in here and he prays with me. And I did not know him before he, he got saved, before the Lord redeemed him and saved him from his sin. But if you could hear the stories of the, who this man was, you would never believe it. You would, I, I promise you, you would never believe it. It's insane. And you would never think that God could reach a person like that, that God could change a person like that, that somebody so kind and gentle and loving and gracious could be that same person in the same lifetime. Yet that's what God does. Ezekiel tells us that he gives us a new heart, a new spirit, that he changes us. He can free us from these things. And that's not to say that the things that you're struggling with right now, that you will never, ever struggle with them ever again. But the beauty of it is if we walk with Jesus during those times of struggle, we can overcome them and we don't have to fall back into them. That's the beauty of it. But Jesus is very real. He reveals himself to the disciples. The disciples through the, the apostle and every, apostles and everything they said in Acts 2.42, the apostles' teachings, we follow that. We listen to it because it points to Jesus and he's our Lord and Savior.
Let's pray. So, Lord, we thank you for this morning, the story of this, the transfiguration of Jesus and revealing his glory, revealing his identity and who he is. Lord, we don't have to be ashamed of following Jesus, that death is not the end. Lord, but there is so much liberation, so much freedom from following Jesus. And I thank you for that. I thank you that you love us and you care for us. Lord, I pray that you would do a mighty work in our hearts and our lives. Lord, that you reveal yourself over and over again in our own lives. And Lord, we thank you and love you. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, let's break out for a few moments. Um, after, after we're done, after the, the parents and the adults come out, we do have a meeting in here for, oh my gosh, I didn't even give you guys any announcements. After, uh, the, after today, sorry, after service, we have a softball.